either work with your own body or you can let it control you and then you can fight it. So with the breaking the pelvis, I knew that I was going to work with it. I wasn't going to sue the person that did it. Yeah, like that's huge, especially in North America for, for the patient needs to take responsibility for themselves and for their own health. So not to say people should never sue, but for me, I knew that for my best outcome, I would just need to focus on the health. What does health look like? And it's all the mental energy, focusing on feeling good and feeling better, not, oh, I'm giving the evidence for why I'm not good for the insurance company. So, so, this, so I went on from that in 2001, had the melanoma, and that more made me aware of the internal environment and the toxins we produce when we're in a state of stress. Um, when we're in a state of stress and the fight and flight response is active, then we produce a lot of uh, the norepinephrine, epinephrine, and the cortisol, which dampens the immune system, dampens, as I said, with, with the melanoma, it dampens our looking after our cell functions of the body. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and it is a beautiful, beautiful year ahead of us. 2021 is definitely going to be better than 2020, even though for some people, 2020 actually was a kick in the ass to rethink their lives. I know I did it myself. I closed down and we sold our nutrition and detox wellness center in Pemberton, British Columbia, so that in 2022, we can really focus on doing retreats for people who want to learn about the Gerson therapy, who want to learn about using food as medicine to reverse their diseases. Well, they get to still continue to do that with us, but because I want to spend more time with my family... I wanted to spend less time managing a really large property. We decided that we're only going to host retreats in different locations around the world. So we're going to bring ourselves to you. And we would couple that with family time. So it, 2020 really was an eye opener for me in the sense that I work really hard. I definitely work way, way too much, probably putting in 80 hour weeks. And I decided that I need to scale that back. I've been giving of myself for many, many years over to my clients uh, and making sure that I've been supporting them. But in the last 15 years, I definitely haven't done a great job of taking care of myself. Yes, I eat well. And yes, I give myself education and learning in the sense of doing my master's and PhD, but I need to definitely make sure for the next 15, 20, 30, 40 years of my life, actually I plan on living to be about 107 is my goal, but I really need to make sure that I give myself extra time to sleep really well, to meditate consistently, to also really study and dive even deeper into the science and the research, to better my education skills and my teaching skills, and to really just take time out to be creative as well. I've been very go, go, go for, you know, the last really 15, 20 years of my life. Some people would say I've always been like that. And 
being amongst COVID where I got to spend a lot of time with my family, lots of downtime, lots of trying to figure it out time, I realized that I need to take care of myself. And then by taking care of myself, by putting that oxygen mask on myself first, I'm going to be of better service to all my clients moving forward. So in taking care of myself, one of the biggest things is spending more time with my family. I have three girls. They are 17 or 16 years, 13 years and nine years. And I've definitely noticed that the last 16 years have gone by so quickly in the blink of an eye. My oldest is thinking about university, you know, thinking about what she wants to do with the rest of her life. And so I want to spend more time with my family. So I realized, and we talked about this, my husband and I, that we can do the retreats in multiple other locations. It's what I used to do before. I loved it. And we'll do these retreats in, you know, the location of our dreams and be able to tie in family vacations time together before and after the retreat. My girls are incredible. They actually help out at the retreats. My oldest two work in our restaurants. They are really beautiful, kind, diligent, hardworking kids. And so why not go and do retreats as a family? So that is our next endeavor is to do family retreats in beautiful locations, bring our retreats to you. So if you have any ideas of beautiful retreat locations that would host individuals like myself, definitely email us and let us know. If you know about retreat hosts that do all the marketing, all the hosting, they provide all of the amenities, then, you know, and they're just looking for somebody like myself, an educator and a speaker to come and teach retreats in those locations. Send me the links for those individuals or organizations, because we will definitely bring our teaching to you. So that's an update on how 2020 has changed my life, our life, my family's life. And of course, there were lots of downsides. You know, it was terrible having to lay off lots of staff. We got to hire many, many of them back. But what it also opened up to me is, while I love running multiple businesses, and there's great joy in that, we want to simplify our life as well on all fronts. So in hiring our staff back, all of us are working from home. I never thought that I'd like to work digitally, and there's lots of sides to it that I do not like. I definitely love being face-to-face -face with my staff, but at the same time, you know, shrinking our businesses, really, really getting hyper-focused in certain areas of our business, that is what COVID has done. And I can just hear our advisory board members laughing right now because they've been telling me to do this for years. They probably saw how I ran around like crazy, managing lots of teams and lots of businesses and they probably knew for my own health it would be better to hyper focus well let me tell you it just took a global pandemic to make me realize that as well now on the flip side we also know how hard covid has been on so many people so if you're listening to this right now the covid pandemic is not over and i want anyone who's listening to the show to make a list of 10 people, 20 people, 30 people that you have not contacted or been in touch with over the last 10 months since the, you know, first case of COVID maybe hit your town and the lockdown happened. 
And it's important that if you haven't heard from somebody and if you haven't talked to somebody in a while, that you reach out to them, send them a text, but even better yet, actually do it the old fashioned way where you pick up the phone and call them and just check in with them and say, hey, how are you doing? How has this been for you? Because I can tell you within the work that I do, lots of people have reached out to me to say that they know many, many people that are suffering from the effects of COVID, mental health-wise, the stress, the anxiety, the fear of this being a global pandemic and what that's brought up in them. Even some of you know the most um, logical, rational, level-headed thinkers out there have been greatly impacted by this global pandemic and and everything that it means for themselves, their business, the family. Sometimes the fear can overwhelm somebody and then they're actually not able to get back to that, you know, way of thinking about COVID where it doesn't overwhelm them. And, you know, when we go down that route, it's really difficult. Many people have started drinking, people have started doing drugs. On the flip side, there's people who've quit drinking entirely, stopped doing drugs, started eating better. But then on the other side, there's people who've gone down the hole, that that really deep hole that can, once it gets a hold of you, it's really hard to get out, but if not eating well. So those foods, those highly processed foods are very addictive. And once we get down that path, that a lot of those foods are very inflammatory. They disrupt our microbiome in our gut, which then impacts the, the biology of the brain. And then this can present itself in anxiety in depression, in addiction, in so many different ways. So make that list. It's probably one of the kindest things that you can do right now. Make a list of 10, 20 people and just get on the phone and contact them and just say, Hey, how are you doing? Can I help you with anything? Have you been negatively affected by COVID? If they say no, then ask them how they've been positively effective as well. Many people like myself, I started training and running and biking and working out in the gym, um, all in service of my greater goal to ride and cycle across Canada starting June 1st. So I've actually gotten very fit, but that's not the case for other people. So we want to check in on our loved ones. We want to see how they're doing. We want to, and even if they're not in your immediate family, perhaps it's, I don't know, that person who used to come into your business, uh, the bike courier, and you haven't seen them in eight months, call the bike courier and say, how are you doing? I'm just thinking about you. Um, because it's important and follow up and make sure that you get a response back from them. Because in several cases, in in our community, we've seen people who have actually, you know, gone quite dark and silent, and they're not going out, they're not returning phone calls. And we've later discovered that they have been in a state of uh, continuous chronic panic and acute panic um, throughout this COVID uh, epidemic. So we really need to support our community members. Most communities don't have the resources. Uh, to support people proactively. Unfortunately, we have to wait until they, you know, engage in, unfortunately, suicide or hurting themselves in some way. Um, and we and they're too far down that path. And so, you know, we don't have these resources because preventative health is not something where a lot of money is put towards it. So we have to be that resource for those individuals. If anybody needs any help, um, I don't have specific training in uh, a lot of 
you know, how to deal with people who are suffering from mental health um, in, and what to do in that. But I have reached out to a lot of organizations over the years where I've been taught in, you know, asking just really clear questions to try and get an understanding of, you know, what state somebody is in and maybe how to then facilitate and getting them to the next stage of next stage of getting help. So you can reach out to your crisis hotline, suicide hotline, mental health hotlines that are out there and reach out to experts in the field who will be able to support you if you are concerned about somebody, but it actually takes that first action of identifying that there might be somebody in your community who needs those services. And then your job could just be to connect them to the resources and let them know that you're concerned about them. Let them know that you've noticed that um, their behavior has changed. Let them know that there are solutions out there to help them. So please go and do that. Let me know how that goes. If you need any support, we're here for you to help you. If you're concerned about somebody and you need support, if you yourself are perhaps living with somebody who has an immediate family member that you know is going through this, remember that you too, this is hard on you. This is hard emotionally. It can be hard physically. And so therefore you need the support as well to make sure that you are um, getting the support, getting the resources, staying strong, and also having an outlet to discuss this as well. Okay, so you need to be supported. The person who's going through the trauma of COVID needs to be supported as well. And collectively, we can do this when we reach out to people and ask for help. Okay, so without further ado, let's dive into today's podcast because the this intro is very fitting for the work that she does in autogenic therapy, as well as in the Gerson therapy and food as medicine. So Dr. Lucy Lyons, MD, is our guest on our show today, and she is a Vancouver, British Columbia-based physician here in Canada. She's also a neuroscientist, an autogenic therapist, and an international wellness champion. She qualified in medicine and neuroscience at the University of College London in the UK and has over 20 years of clinical experience. So Lucy teaches autogenics and many of you may not have heard of what autogenics is, but it is a mental health training exercise, or I should say exercises and emotional offloading. So patients learn how to deactivate their sympathetic nervous systems and work towards realizing their authentic Selves. And I love this because of the fact that there's so much discussion in the world, so much research and science showing how trauma lends itself to inflammation, to chronic disease, and to other debilitating illnesses. But what's often not taught is how to unleash and offload that trauma and how to maneuver through it. So that is what autogenics does. It allows you to release the emotional um, trauma and then from that place, you get to realize your true potential. So Dr. Lucy Lyons also teaches creativity mobilization technique, otherwise known as mess painting. And we're gonna dive into that into the podcast. And this is done in a no thought states, which brings the unconscious into consciousness. So I'm definitely going to be diving into mess painting. She has been passionate about the arts and exploring self-expression, and she was president of the UCL Medics Drama Society. 
And Dr. Lucy Lyons has researched plant-based nutrition since 2003. So she's unlike many physicians out there who never study nutrition. This is the opposite. She has extensive experience in nutritional sciences. And having followed a whole food plant-based diet for many years, triggered by her first dive into doing the Gerson therapy when she herself was diagnosed with cancer, you can see that Dr. Lucy Lyons brings lots to this podcast today. So she can guide patients on their own unique journey to improve their health and also the health of the planet. Dr. Lucy Lyons recently joined our board, the Sea to Sky Thrivers Society, which is a registered nonprofit and charity here in Canada with the aims of educating communities across Canada about the benefits of plant-based healing as medicine to reverse chronic disease. Lucy gained membership of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health and later the Royal College of General Practitioners in the UK. And in 2007, she became a member of the College, Family of Family, College of Family Practitioners of Canada. And she recently joined the Faculty of Medicine at University of British Columbia, an amazing university and medical school that teaches physicians. And she is the co-chair of the Vancouver Coastal Health Physician Wellness Committee, supporting doctors and working to reduce patient burnout. So you can see that she does many things. And of course, on top of that, she is the mother of three young children and she spends all of her free time enjoying the outdoors with her family, swimming and hiking in the mountains. So welcome Dr. Lucy Lyons to the podcast. And for everybody out there, you know what to do. If this show moves you, please share it with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues, even a stranger. If you feel that there's anything in this show that can help that individual turn their health around, which inevitably will turn their life around. So share this podcast and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to 2021 and our first episode of the year. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Lucy Lyons on our show. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you so much, Nikki. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you here on so many levels. And just so the audience knows, um, you know, about our relationship. I mean, I only just met you recently when we were paired together for you to be the moderator at an event that I was speaking at. And you were also speaking at that event as well. I believe it was a whole human summit. That's it. Yeah. Whole human summit based locally in BC. Yeah. Exactly. And when we were paired together, it was so exciting because um, it's not every day that I get to meet another physician uh, that knows about the Gerson therapy. And then here you are, a physician that's actually done the Gerson therapy. To a degree. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I had seen and heard about you from visits to the Green Moustache Cafe. And I was also excited. This isn't just like a weird thing that's, that I've done in Europe. It's here it's, and it's still going on. And I'm so happy to have met you for that. Yeah, for myself as well. Um, and we're going to get into your story about what brought you to Gerson therapy. And um, as many of the people heard in the intro that I did, I mean, you just do a whole plethora of things. But the one piece that I wanted to really dive into is because you are, you know, you are a member of the Autogenic Society, you teach autogenics to your patients and your clients, um, and you're a medical doctor, you are, you know, you dive deep into the research as well in neuroscience, you're a faculty, you're a faculty member at UBC. 
Yep. You know, here you are in this, you know, very deeply entrenched in the medical world as a lot of physicians would know it, but at the same time, you've broken out into these niche areas as well. So I want to go back first and let's talk about what brought you into medicine to begin with. Well, it's not the traditional story. I didn't always dream about being a doctor. Um, I was quite left to my own devices as a teenager from the age of 13. My mum was in and out of hospital in intensive care. She was very sick with diabetes and a stroke. My father was 60 when I was born and I'm an only child. So I was just kind of lost without a direction as a teenager. Um, I had a, a sort of wish when I had friends who had some siblings like in the beauty industry. I was really into what I did. What is health? What makes people feel good in themselves? So it's not like I wanted a health farm, but I used to sometimes dream of that sort of thing that wasn't so beauty dependent, but making people feel good and really being their best selves. So I sort of surprised myself at 16 of getting like the best grades in my year for the, what we call GCSEs in England. And I was like, wow maybe I should do something with my life. Um, so medicine actually just seemed like a challenge. I, I didn't want to look into the disease and down that negative, thinking about the negative side of health. I, but I thought it would be a good challenge and you know, wasn't thinking of the end goal of being a doctor, just that'll be a good challenge. Um, so that was how I got to medical school. But through that, I also saw my mum's journey with being very sick. She had all of the chronic diseases that our world is plagued with and that we try and heal people from with the whole food plant-based diet with the mental strategies but she really had it all and I accompanied her to a lot of hospital visits on the wards speaking with doctors and really got to see you know what is a good doctor what is a doctor that doesn't seem to care and that gave me just the best compassion training and empathy to actually get to the end of medical school not burnt out with just having a dream or parents who made you go into medicine but it sort of evolved naturally my actual love for for people I'm curious about people and that has evolved in a very healthy way I think that I still love people I still love my job and the curiosity and the privilege of being able to explore people's lives and help them be their best self. I love that story because it just speaks so much to your character and I know that our listeners are probably listening to you and you already the way you speak I mean you're so kind um, it's just it's in your voice as well and so I often it just made me think about like the why we do anything that we do and your yours is truly a place out of you know principles and values around you know wanting to make society better and humans better and I love that is it being the drive versus you know, if you go into medical school because you want to become rich or because you want to make money or because your parents are forcing you to. And then we do see a lot of burnout in medical students. And I regularly meet um, students who are studying medicine and they're not even through their final years and they're already wanting to quit. And that's the part that just breaks my heart because there's so much that can be done in this field to help people and support people all the way from birth right through to you know end stage life and palliative care. But if you're in it for the wrong reasons, then you know, you're just gonna be wrought with difficulties being in this profession. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's nice to see that you came at it from such a place of, you know, this beautiful intrinsic value of truly wanting to bring health. And did you say that you wanted to start a health farm? Is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, that's all I dreamed of. And then when I found out about you and you've got this, in my mind, the retreat center, I, I just imagine that being everything that I've dreamed of, you know, all of the different aspects of care, like functional medicine approach, applying it. It's just such a shame that it's not a government provided service that our leaders don't appreciate this that we do. Yeah, and this is what we absolutely need to change is the way that we look at how we deliver healthcare as well. Like what does that environment look like that we deliver it? And we do, we have so many practitioners trying to move into more of integrated, you know, wellness practices, but they're still so separate. You still need to book the appointment with one practitioner and then book it with another practitioner. And they're not often speaking to each other just because the building itself has certain offices for chiropractic care and physio and autogenic therapy and, you know, medicine, um, you know, maybe general practice, but it still needs to come together even more. And I love this concept of a health farm, raising health and healthy people is very, very cool. I've never heard that before. So you were in the UK and I, let's just dive into your parents if you don't mind us talking about them a little bit more. Um, can I assume correctly that your parents probably weren't eating like a wholesome, you know, clean vegetable-based diet or am I making some wrong they were completely opposite. So my mom um, used to not enjoy proper fresh food. Like she, we would have the traditional uh, English like meat and two veg. So a piece of meat and boiled potatoes and broccoli. So think some ingredients were there, there was no added salt, um, or, but other times it would be like a shop-bought lasagna, Marks and Spencer's lasagna, so pre-packaged or frozen, ready meals, always with some broccoli, greens. Um, but my, my dad, he was actually super healthy and he had a pre-colonial diet, you know, he would just have we never had sauces, for example, apart from the shop-bought pre-packaged ones, but we didn't do the cooking. So I had no clue. I'd never chopped an onion <laughs> until I discovered this diet. You know, maybe the broccoli, you don't need to chop it much. You just pull the florets and cook it. So I knew how to do that. I could do mashed potato, but I really didn't know about food growing up. No sauces. I just thought it came out of a tin. No. Yeah, my and, dad was pretty healthy and he used to cycle 40 miles a day until he was 86. So he did live a long and healthy life. And did your mom and dad live together then if he was uh, on this yeah. pre, but yeah, he was eating more pre-colonial. Wow. Okay. So this is really fascinating. I love um, hearing about how we were raised and I, I often, you know, when I have guests come to our retreat center, they fly from all over the world and and I love that you said that you had never even chopped an onion because I get clients like that all the time that will hold up a potato and they've actually never seen a potato in its whole form. They've only ever seen it as French fries or powdered <laughs> mashed potatoes or something. And I'm always so shocked because I had the opposite upbringing where my mom, I mean, being born in Africa, I mean, we had, we relied on gardens and food being produced in our backyard but then even in Canada when we moved my mom brought that knowledge with her so we always had a garden and my brother used to go out to the garden and pick an onion and eat it like an apple straight out of the garden when he was little 
I know, but that's just, you know, we had this taste for all these different vegetables. So it's interesting hearing like the meat and two veg concepts, because now on a plant-based diet, obviously we're talking about something vastly different. It's more like dozens of vegetables on your plate um, yep. and you don't really need the meat even. So when you were in the UK, were you, you were, I would say eating the same lifestyle. So when you went into med school, uh, like what were you feeding yourself to get through med school? Was it still Ooh. the same kind of foods? I think uh, it was an, in the halls of residence, it was, it was cooked. So you could have whatever was on, on offer there. Like I got introduced to curries. I grew up in a, in a kind of small town um, in Southeast England. And then I was studying in central London. So I was introduced to foods around the world. It was really a smorgasbord of delight to try all the new foods I'd never been to. Um, restaurants from various countries around the world it was quite quite an isolated uh, childhood so yeah I was keen to explore everything but it wasn't very wasn't wasn't healthy at all uh, and so but you safely got through you safely got through med school on the diet that you were on and then tell us about um, how you ended up discovering the Gerson therapy because it's not too often that physicians do get to discover and engage in the Gerson therapy yeah I think that's really speaking to the whole story of the, the melanoma. So two years before I got the melanoma, I was working in the neonatal unit. I, I trained in pediatrics at that time. I was in, in the pediatrics and one of the doctors I worked with, her father was a dermatologist and she was chatting about him and some cases. And I said, we need to keep in touch. I know I'm going to get a melanoma one day. And it wasn't okay, just well, my well, well. Why did you think you were going to get a melanoma? knew it because I knew I got sunburn when I was a teenager. I used to love getting tanned, you know, putting baby oil alongside my friends with darker skin who didn't go all red and blister. So I knew I damaged my skin. And I knew that people with like red hair and blue eyes, this was a very high likelihood of this happening. And I didn't think about the diet side of things or that my body was in a terrible state um, on that level, but I just knew. So I think that's that's part of it is is you know, the placebo effect. I knew that my body was set up for cancer, and then I, I had a mole on my leg, which was just changing slightly. You know, I'd be wearing skirts, and no one would make any comments. Working with a bunch of doctors, and then when I got the diagnosis, um, it just terrified me. I had surgery to remove it, a wide excision. I at, at that time, I I also knew I wasn't under the control of doctors so there were options and they said well we'll have to take a skin graft from your other leg and make it into a big drama general anesthetic I was like no surely you can just take out the skin around it I don't need a general anesthetic and can you not take the skin just just um like I've uh, made that decision that you know I'm in control of the body so I I will make the skin around it heal you can just do as small as you need to do and they did manage to do it without a skin graft, which was very good. But then I was with the anxiety of what am I going to do? There were cancer cells floating around my body in my blood. And I had known a girl at medical school who had died while I was at medical school in the year above of a melanoma. So that was playing on my mind that I could be her. So many similarities. Um, so from that point, I had to do whatever I could do to keep these, the body, like the, 
you know, like Claude Bernard, the, the milieu anterior of the body, what can I do to strengthen that? So with that, I found the Gerson therapy. How did I find it? I think it was um, Professor Jane Plant's book. I just was reading and reading about um, like breast cancer, melanoma. I had a feeling there was, there was lots that we haven't proven yet. And I read in her book about the idea that humans are not designed to drink milk, for example. And it just made complete sense. Like, why would you want to put milk that's for baby cows in your body with all those growth factors? And that, that was probably the changing moment for me that it was in the diet. Like, humans are not designed to drink milk. Like, what else are we doing that we're just doing? Because that's what society does. And that's how I found it through research like that, that way. And this part is the most fascinating to me because I would love to have been, a, you know, a little bird on your shoulder, um, just watching this process unravel because of the fact that, um, were you in med school at this time when you, when you? No, I was um, after 2003. So I'd been um, doing pediatrics for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone through med school. You're now practicing um, medical practitioner. You discover this mole, you, they take it, they remove it. And then were you offered chemo or? Oh no, that was um, thought to be enough. They didn't even um, biopsy the lymph node. They do this thing, a sentinel node biopsy now to okay. check if it's spread to the lymph nodes. So for me, they would, would have checked the groin. If it was now, they would have checked that. Um, but, but they didn't then. Um, so that was left it more in my mind, like, oh, could they, could the cancer cells be in my groin? They haven't even checked because it was only six months after that, that that became standard care. And in fact, you were, you were asking what led to the Gerson. So it was finding Beata Bishop, finding her book first. Okay, so I knew there had to be something because I was like, how did you jump from being yeah. diagnosed with melanoma to being curious about dairy and being curious about because that was the that's a pretty big leap to make especially and I'm assuming in the again I'm making lots of assumptions which I shouldn't but in in the UK even because I know in the United States they don't teach a lot of nutrition in med school not at all no really not you know I remember the biochemical lectures and you know they it wasn't a whole systems approach, really, medical school. Everything was compartmentalized. And now we're learning more and more that there are whole body systems that, that like the epigenetics and all of this, which, which you just, you've just not taught that something that will uh, fuel the whole organism, that can we, can we act, how can we act on that? Is that such a thing? So we just learned about individual processes, parts of the body, what nutrients they required, not seeing the big picture. That's what's really different, yeah. Yeah, and I, and because of the work that I do in teaching physicians as well, I often get um, comments like, "Oh, I'm a hematologist, you know, so I don't know anything about, you know, you know, um, uh, about you know pediatrics, or I don't know anything about bones, or I don't know anything about neuroscience." And I'm like, "But it's one body system, and you know, this is the part that it's true. Like even just the way medical school." The curriculum is designed it is very much siloed and um and if you want to discover or look at the body through that lens that it is a complete system and when we understand it that way i think that you know medicine would look entirely different so tell us about beata bishop's book so you came across beata because she's from the uk 
and she yeah, had I actually over. went to her house for dinner three years after first getting her book <laughs> oh you did okay yes. that's amazing so how did you discover her book then well through through the research with um, Jane Plants but that got me into the that whole arena of what we put in our body what well not only that it's just all of the toxins we put in from outside but then that took me further to what toxins are we producing for ourselves, and that's what's got me on to the get rid of all of the um, toxins from the mind get rid of the effects of stress working 80 hour weeks how can I do that and still have a really healthy immune system to check all these cancer cells yeah and you are when I hear you speak of this you know I see complete similarities between you and Dr. Max Gerson himself, because he was, you know, a newly minted physician, medical doctor. He suffered from migraines. He was not taught about nutrition either. And this is going back 1918. So, you know, like really a hundred years later, nothing's really changed. And then being two medical doctors who discover the diet is responsible for so much of our health. Was this like a paradigm shift? Did you like, did you feel gutted? Did you go through emotional breakdown? Like mentally, what were you going through when you were discovering this? Cause this, it must've been shocking. Yeah. And everything was gutted. Like my whole home was gutted of all the chemicals and products and my mind. I wanted to detox my, my mind as well. So not only all of the products in the bathroom, I moved to these, really tiny producers of the purest product products for my skin wow. what I wash my clothes with wash the dishes with even going so far over the, the three years later to move out of central London because the air is so toxic you know the the water filter the Berkey water filter I just wanted to provide my body with everything all of the goodness it needs and none of the harms that keep our bodies in a state of stress and allow us not to do the housekeeping functions of the body you know all the time we're in a state of stress why would I need to look after the immune system it doesn't matter I've got to survive just that minute when I'm in a state of stress so really and then actually it did it made me change my whole life as I say just the move out to London the moving career was probably influenced by this as well that I was working in paediatrics in a central London she's teaching hospital it's such a high pressure environment you would have to work seven days and uh, in a row at 13 hours or seven nights um, and I'd just been working in one job where you would go in Friday morning and you would be on call till Monday morning you were never free there was no allocated time to sleep like that's not healthy and what's more, what's worse than that is that everybody, all of the physicians working in that environment have just learned to, to listen to their bodies. If they listen to their bodies, they could not do those hours. They couldn't do it. So I just realized I had tried speaking to the colleagues. And what was really ironic was when I was doing pediatric oncology, teenage oncology, which is so emotional and so intense, I was spending my days injecting chemotherapy like to the, into the spine, intrathecal chemotherapy, the most toxic agents, which we know just are nothing good for the body. And I would bring my 
really healthy food to probably snack on all day. And it was just a horrible situation being laughed at and people um, not understanding that I had decided to look after myself when they would just still be getting junk food. Those same people that would have to do the chemotherapy on these kids and manage it. They just weren't looking after themselves. And when I would start, you know, people would say, oh, what, they, you know, make a big fuss. I didn't want to feel special. Like, oh, I'm so special looking after my health. I'm, I'm so special that I give myself an hour a day to prepare my food. Um, I just felt so full of shame for looking after myself and that knowing that um, everybody that I was working with sort of laughed at me and then oh, who does she think she is like giving herself to, like such a lot of effort and putting like thinking I'm worth it they just didn't have that thought that they're worth to bother to spend all that time like I should be like instead of preparing the food I should be reading up like doing some more like research on these um, difficult cases that we've got. I should be going to more journal clubs. But no, I had decided like, no, I'm not going to do that. Even though I'm working all these hours, the other hours of the day, I'm going to look after myself. And that was the biggest shift is thinking I'm worth it. And that's what I have with patients I see every day. But that's all you need to do as a doctor is for patients to have that switch of, I'm worth it to make the time and change my life because the Gerson therapy or the whole food plant-based lifestyle does require effort and it's not persuading people of the benefits it does you know drawing pictures of arteries all clear and things it's really they've got to make that switch of I'm worth it yeah it's so true and I love um it's interesting, this raises so, so many questions, but one of the things I remember in the podcast I did with Beata Bishop is when she did talk about that, she's like, it is such hard work. Like she didn't sugarcoat the Gerson therapy to being like, the food is delicious. And it's so, you know, I often tell my clients, there's so much abundance. You get to eat 300,000 different plant species if you have access to them. You know, it's really about not, not scarcity, not eliminating things. It's about bringing nutrients into your world in, you know, an abundance and variety of colors and you can prepare them in so many different ways. Um, but, you know, you're preparing them in ways that maintain their nutrient value and make it easy to digest and all of these things. But Beata Bishop was hilarious on the podcast because she's like, it's the hardest thing to do and the food wasn't even that tasty. But <laughs> the one thing that was really clear is that she felt her life was worth it because she had been diagnosed with melanoma. It did return, it ended up in her groin. It had metastasized. The doctors hadn't been able to help her the first time around. They just said, we're gonna go in and cut it out again. But that had left her you know, quite um, mutilated in a lot of ways. She wasn't healing from the surgery afterwards as well. But then she did the Gerson therapy and healed fully. And now she's what, 97, I think? Mm, yeah. Yeah, 97. And this was back in 1979 when she did the Gerson therapy or was first diagnosed. And this piece about, you know, a medical doctor feeding themselves well, feeding yourself and taking care of yourself, but then having your peers make fun of you. I also interviewed another doctor um, early on in this podcast. And the same thing happened with her. She had advanced stage lupus, you know, that she was told that she would not be able to ever have children. And she ended up 
do, like switching fully to plant-based whole foods. She would carry a backpack of water with her because she realized she had been very dehydrated for so long, living just on coffee and caffeine and, and Diet Cokes for very long. But the other doctors made fun of her for just drinking water. And they were like, oh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to fill my backpack up with coffee. And so that's what the other doctors started doing. And so they didn't have to carry around a water bottle. But it's this same thing. It's this concept of like when somebody's trying to better themselves, why do other people feel it's their right to make fun of them? And this is a part that happens with so many of my clients who start eating this way and they go to work and their peers, their colleagues they're at work also say, oh, you're eating like a bird or, you know, why are you eating that? There's not mm -hmm. enough protein. And everybody feels this need to comment on others when others are just trying to do something, you know, for themselves. Yeah. I, and the other thing is things were very different in 2003. Like the whole food plant-based life now, it's, it is cool. It's got beautiful people representing it. You are your, any of the, all of the ultra athletes. Like it's a cool thing to do to look after your health now. And it's really great to be, to talk about being interested in longevity now. Like that's that yeah. you can go somewhere and talk to people and they're not like, oh, you're so special, wanted to live so long. Why do you think you should live so long? Um, but, but now it's really cool, but it was very different then. And back then, if, but people saw my food or like how, you know, I'm in my twenties in London, I still want to go to all those exciting restaurants and see a bunch of friends and have fun. And oftentimes there would be literally nothing I could order. And then everyone's like, Oh, Oh, can't you have this? And Oh, why are you doing it? Or you meet someone new and you have to tell your whole life story. And that's not, that's not part of healing to, to think, thinking about the negative, thinking about the melanoma, the cancer cells. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to tell everyone about it and be defined by it. Mm -hmm. um, and when people, I say, look, it's like a, a vegan diet and the word vegan back then had meant so much like, oh, so you like, um, like I'm a Green Party activist, which I'm not. I really do do a lot of, um, it's so much better being, having this whole food plant-based diet and, not having to worry that I'm damaging the planet so much that is I've yeah. learned a lot from that that side of things as well I don't you know I'm not doing all this harm but that's not my primary motivating factor don't lump me in that category of people it really was defining in that way um, and also like, I still want to wear makeup I want all the other elements of detoxifying this the system um, I didn't want to take it to two extremes I wanted to after the initial kind of cleanup of the body relax certain things and um and I think year by year I've, I've relaxed more and more and then something will worry me um or uh make me kind of find the time you know I, I moved to Canada <laughs> three kids big journey uh then you can't you can't have it all you have to prioritize at that time of life yeah I can't um eat perfectly I'm just gonna take a little break and do the best I can but once you once you start to do the Gerson therapy, your the taste buds change within three days. You don't have the crazy cravings. Like you can't explain that to people unless they actually try it. I really, really try now. I say just try, you know, having this um, whole food plant-based diet now. And like you say, the colours, you can't eat a meal that you've prepared and engaged with in a mindful way. That's part of the process. And then not get a good thing out of it there's there's no one 
who does manage three days who doesn't go on they do they just yeah. have to try it but mm -hmm. no and I love that what you said about your taste buds regrowing as well it's that um you know I usually say for clients when they do the Gerson therapy and they or a plant-based diet right now we have a seven-day challenge going on just to eat whole foods plant-based unrefined I don't even care how they prepare it go out there and you know you can boil it steam it bake it you can eat it raw it doesn't matter how you do it but just no refined products and none of the added salt and and one of the things with that that I love is that I told them I said if you can continue that even just for three weeks what will happen is your taste buds will grow to the point where you'll try and eat those other refined foods that you ate before or go out to a restaurant and order your favorite meal. And you won't even be able to eat it because it, the food will burn your mouth. Like it's Absolutely. so salty or all you taste is the oil or all you taste is a fake sugar. And those are like basically the three flavors that dominate our Western diet. And so when you actually get to taste the vegetables, it's amazing. But one question that I do have for you about just going back to when you had prioritized yourself, prioritized your life and your health, um, you minimize the stress in your life as well, making sure you had sleep. What are three things that you wished your colleagues had said to you when you were doing this? How would you have loved for them to engage with you? Because I think this will help people who are listening when they're engaging with others who are making a lifestyle choice that maybe just doesn't align with their own personal values at this time. Oh, great. Yes. Three things um, I would like the colleagues to say to me. Um, but, but well done for, for, for doing this, for finding the courage, like to recognize that it requires a lot of courage and soul searching and to find something within like so the courage because it does need courage I, I and I helped to find that just by sitting in nature to, to 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 change any kind of aspect of life and particularly this this um this way of eating um you need to get rid of something something old reshuffle things so lots of so that's what I'd say the courage to go through all of that change please colleagues recognize that and uh also, um, uh, I would like, mm -hmm. let's think, but also just to give, to not, not be um, assuming things. So nowadays it would be um, a little bit easier, the whole process, like with, with the diet, but, but not tremendously so. Um, but, you know, maybe to say, oh, can I try, engage with it and like go along with and challenge and join in the challenge. Maybe they could offer to, to share something, find some connection with it rather than like me and them to, to mm -hmm. connect somehow, take an aspect of it that they're going to do um, like that. And yeah, that would be really, really rewarding. And also the other bit that... Um, to, to acknowledge would be like, you know, that, it, that it's okay to not be okay, you know, seeing me like worrying about things and just, just to have someone there to acknowledge that um, because that's just not something that doctors like to accept they, that something's not okay. And we need to, I had to learn that process. So that was another way I was like on my own learning that going through the mental changes. 
Mm. Giving me time to do the practices that I needed to do. I had to hide in the loo, actually, in the washroom, um, in the hospitals when I was training, um, doing the Gerson, but learning the, the mental relaxation because I couldn't tell them again that I was going to have 10 minutes or even five minutes sometimes to relax for myself. So you do need so much support. And I would have been such, I was such a better doctor for having the five minutes, but couldn't tell them. So just to reduce the shame of it all, I think, not having to feel like that. Those are three wonderful and important um, suggestions. And just to acknowledge that I think is really important too, because it is hard making, the, what you're talking about is making a fundamental lifestyle change. And anybody, anytime somebody wants to make a lifestyle change, you're exactly right. We should go up to those people and say, wow, that takes a lot of courage. It is so hard to make a lifestyle change and good on you for doing that. So I love that. I also love the part about what you said about, you know, offering to help or participate or, you know what, I'm going to give that a try too. Or even just to get curious to be like, tell me more about how this works as opposed to you shouldn't be doing that. There's not enough protein in there, blah, 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 blah. You know, we know the, all the common things that people like to tell other people when they're changing their diets. Even now. Even now. Or you need to be eating more fat. You need to be eating less fat. You need to, you and know. I, all be, these... I did my pregnancies like vegan. So people are horrified <laughs> with that. <laughs> I'm sure in so many, like uh, coming at it right away. So, you know, so telling the person, you know, that's amazing. You're so courageous. I support you telling the person like, wow, tell me more. I'm very curious. Or, you know, maybe I should try this even just for a couple days, you know, or why don't I make a meal and we'll share our meal tomorrow or something like that to support the person. I do love that. And then of course, your last point definitely, I think is the most important as well is never shaming anybody for making a choice, right? Yeah. Even if somebody wanted to start smoking or start eating meat or, or what, like there's no point in shaming anybody. And in fact, you can just return back to those first two points. Like, wow, that takes a lot of courage to do X, Y, and Z. Tell me more about that. And so it just circles back to that. And it's about building connection as opposed to putting up walls because the minute we start shaming people, we put up a wall, you know, or if, you know, any of your colleagues for saying, why do you want to take five minutes out? You know, you shouldn't be doing that because we're meant to work. Well, it's to ask yourself, well, who put up these definitions mm -hmm. of how a doctor is supposed to function in a certain environment? And also why not question that and to say, well, is that actually working for us? Is it working for me? And then when you ask yourself that question, I think there'd be less shame all around and going back to more curiosity and then people working together to want to make the systems better because it is a brutal environment for most physicians when they're going through med school and then when they're working in the field as well. Those are three really good points. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot right there. <laughs> so then when you were doing the Gerson therapy, how long did you stay on it for? I didn't to be honest through every aspect of it you know I, I I did as much as was doable for me but I'd say um I was pretty strict uh for like, six to 12 months okay great yes and it's when somebody has been diagnosed with cancer it is recommended that the longer you go the better so looking at the one year to two years definitely especially for somebody who has stage four cancer or very aggressive disease with a you know a very um 
um, definitive prognosis as well. So it's important to stay on the therapy. And then while you did, and then of course you remained plant-based whole food after that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I remain, I, I, um, I have developed, um, a love like once or twice a year for going to a great steakhouse and having a raw steak that is dripping in blood. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And tell me about that. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it is a kind of craving. I don't crave it at any other time, but just sometimes also don't, don't like too many rules. It feels very restrictive. Like, um, in, in life to be, to be too precious. I sometimes get this feeling like, oh, I've never had that tattoo on my body. Like, why is that? Why am I so precious about myself? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I go go past the steakhouse and, and I was like, oh, wow, I, I might quite fancy that actually. And I don't want to be rigid and too attached to why, why am I doing something? You know, it actually, you know, my body doesn't feel that great afterwards and it, having the meat, but just is it's a, a quick thrill you know it's enjoyable for me so why not do it I don't want to give myself too many too many rules to stick to I came to Canada longing for freedom freedom in in thought action and so this seemed didn't feel healthy to to restrict too many too many things if I want to do it I'm going to do it um yeah but uh, I and I love that you mentioned that as well, because it is important to note that there's some, you know, individuals who are going to do the Gerson therapy and they're going to do it to treat their disease, but then they're going to go back and they're probably going to introduce, you know, it's not going to be as, you know, w- that you can't go out for dinner and, you know, you are going to go out for dinner with friends and you might have prawns and you might have steak and you might have that. For a lot of people, it's a slippery slope. The challenge is when they go from eating, let's say the steak or the prawns, but then they go to eating chicken tenders, you know, the refined, you know, really terrible quality meats, everything like that. And when they start to do it, you know, once a day or, you know, once a week versus, I mean, you're doing it a few times a year. And so that's another important thing that for a lot of people that it doesn't mean that you have to be 100% super strict the entire time. But while you have the disease, though, it is important yes. that you are fueling your body, right? Like that's, if you could just Absolutely, speak a little bit yeah. more to that. Yeah. And um, it wasn't that I, I, I happened to be in a Brazilian restaurant um, a few years ago, and everybody else was eating um, different cuts of meat. And I, I found enough salads and interesting, good quality foods but I just saw saw the uh, server cutting it off the the big the big lump of meat, and I just thought, oh, I really fancy some of that. And that's when I thought, I really enjoy that. I'll do it every now and then. But it hasn't become more often. But I don't want to limit myself to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that, and so that people have to know because it is. Some people have been a lot of you know why we eat. It's because of the memory. It's the how we grew up. Mm-hmm. It's more the that connection to those memories, which are the connections to our family. Sometimes it's the smell that triggers a memory. And so it's often a feeling associated with it as well. And so it's not to say 100% no to all of that, but it is definitely to also acknowledge that you are building, you've built resiliency in your body. Your body is strong and it's vibrant. And so if you were to do that, it's not going to be the breaking point for you. Whereas we know for some individuals, when they make that their lifestyle every day, 
all it takes is that one extra steak cooked in fats and oils and French fries. And then all of a sudden it's a heart attack, right? Where it is very different when you treat your body predominantly well with all of the nutrient dense foods. And then you add that afterwards, you know, and that's a very different situation for a lot of people. And it's also um, part of the journey has been that as, as the years go past, it's been easier to find kind of vegan convenience food. So mm. there have been times in life where I, I have done less of the hard work myself and, and new, new kind of sources come out of food that's already prepared, taking shortcuts here and there. And, and I can see that could have spiraled out of control. And so I'm aware of that now, but that just wasn't easy in 2003 you had to take your food everywhere, especially um, going on a, on a plane journey, you know, everything you have to plan, you have to, and I suppose that's the habit that changed once you've already instituted that habit of planning, preparing, shopping, cooking, that once you set that up, it, it, it's, that's a solid new me. That's, that's how I eat. And it, that's the mental energy required to set that practice up and make it a habit was um, quite a lot and quite hard, but now it, now that's running, then, you know, there's a movement I can, sometimes like I mentioned to you um, about a drive-through, it would be great to have a drive-through um, green moustache. And um, we had a little discussion before about it, but I, th I think those kind of things are, are helpful to have some convenience, whole food, plant-based food. And especially like you say, the colors, like for some people like me, if I'd have had, um, a, a product product from one of these whole food cafes then maybe I would have like fallen in love with it then maybe it allows people who wouldn't encounter all of those textures and colors and fl flavors to fall in love with it and explore it further yeah no I love the we do need way more convenience food that is still whole mm -hmm. plant-based fresh and you know drive-through style um, mm -hmm. so that people can just get in and out because it's true it has to be accessible it needs to be ready it needs to be affordable is another thing as well uh, because we need such an abundance of it you know we're not just talking about eating it once a week you know this is three meals a day that we're eating so we need far more restaurants to start preparing these foods you know, and it doesn't mean stop making your burgers and fries, but it just means add to your menu and have something in on the menu that's not laden in salt and sugar and oil, and that is an abundance of vegetables. And I remember working in a restaurant years ago and, um, you know, probably 20 years ago and asking the chef and I'm like, I love the green beans that we have here. Can you please just don't smother them in the oil and the sugar? Could you just use the garlic and the onions? And he wouldn't do it. He's like, no, because it won't taste good. And I'm like, this is crazy. You have a customer and employee asking for it. So we had to twist his rubber arm, but then he eventually started doing it. But then all the staff started eating that way too, because they actually preferred the flavor of the beans when they were crisp. If you have good and produce, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we don't, those chefs out there, if you're listening, stop ruining the beautiful flavors of your produce by, you know, smothering it in the oil, salts, and sugars. And then you'll also be contributing to the health of your customers as well. So that's really important. And then you'll have customers coming back more often because it does take time to shop for the produce to wash it, to cook it, to pack it up in your containers. And a lot of people are eating out. So give them healthy food options and they'll keep coming back for more. 
Yay. And uh, another note to restaurants over the years, it's become less of an occurrence that I would have to just say, I'll, I'll have uh, this dish without meat or something, you know, and then you lose, you don't, you're just not getting any um, sustenance, any goodness. So that, that, that happened for quite a few years. I go to a restaurant and just have to have it without. And some people I've noticed do that when they think that they're adopting this whole food plant-based lifestyle. They, and especially people who are in a family and they're cooking for like a husband or children, they might make um, one dinner and then just, they not eat the meat. And that's what I spend a lot of my time educating patients is that it's not just taking the meat or something away or the dairy produce it's that shake-up of lifestyle that or not even just exchanging it for a piece of tofu some people I know do that's quite a common um, thing people do thinking they're doing themselves a lot of good but it's it's adding all of these seeds and grains and things that you never knew existed you know that's that's the other kind of way that it can go go wrong you know people thinking they're doing good for themselves by just removing the animal product but not putting all the good things that they need instead exactly and it does take that um willingness to explore and go out there and try new things and really i like to tell my clients i'm like you know go out there and purchase 30 different things and then go home and over the course of the week, eat those 30 different things. So at least there's diversity. So you're, it's not just taking the you know, meat out of the bolognese sauce and now you're just having mm -hmm. pasta and tomato sauce, but you're actually having, you know, maybe it's taking the pasta away and maybe you have lentils and then you know a few herbs and spices and a bunch of vegetables. And then all of a sudden you have a complete beautiful meal and you don't even have to necessarily worry about the tofu, right? It's not the substituting one for the other. No, that's a really good point that you bring up. And, and going, but the fact that you are a mother of three, I just wanna touch on that. How has it been for you? You, you, know, you were vegan when you were pregnant, so plant-based whole food when you're pregnant, and then you're raising your children. How it, how, what are their ages and how is it feeding them as a mother? Okay. Oh, yes. Uh, what is the state of affairs? So yes. my youngest um, is nine um, and uh, it's my daughter and I have boys of uh, 12 and 14. I think that's right. So I just completely took things to an extreme. <laughs> when I was, um, I moved out of central London in 2006, the year my first, uh, my son was born to, from central London, King's Cross, it couldn't have been busier, more built up. And as part of this desire to return to nature, to return to the way we should be living, I moved uh, to the middle of the fields, like not even near a town, like five miles to the nearest town in Somerset, Southwest England, um, to a place with two acres of land. And I was, I thought it was heaven. I had, it, the house already had a wonderful veg, vegetable patch, these wonderful tasting artichokes, uh, asparagus. It was already set up. It seemed perfect. An orchard with 39 rare breed apple trees, quince, pear, um, I thought it would be just like perfect, but I overdid it. Like I gave my son, you know, all of these lovely produce mushed up, pureed, and and that I was eating it, like breastfeeding, like thinking, oh, this is like so good. Um, and that was fine. Um, he tolerated the 
the healthy, healthy diet that I was on. Um, and, and then my second son was born. Um, but then when, when the oldest got to about probably five, I think when they got to school, um, he just kind of refused to eat fruit from, it just happened. Um, and then just thinking, trying other ways to provide enough nutrients for him. And then the unhealthy eating kind of slips in, like when they're at school and um, they, they then went to a private school and then the meals are cooked. You don't get a choice. They just get what, what they have. Um, so just an unhealthy decline in how they eat. Um, but also busyness of life. I then had my daughter, um, you know, I had retrained as a, as a general practitioner, a family doctor, uh, and I was doing a lot of research for the, the autogenics I do. And so the, the diet of the children slid to the side and they, my daughter actually is the, is the most, um, the most keen on, she really enjoys like a whole food plant-based diet. She's, I don't know what it is, maybe because um. I, I noticed the slip down just about when she was born. And I was like, I'm not going to make the mistake. I'm not going to overdo it when she's born um, with all these, um, these different foods. Um, but I actually grew to, grew to really dislike um, growing my own food and buy, even, even buying organic food. I just had, I had an aversion. It, there was a, I did go through a phase of all the caterpillars in the food, the effort. And I would just want to go to the supermarket and buy it already washed. You know, I did go, through, I've got, sort of been through all the emotions of this, this journey. <laughs> I love that though. And it's true. Like we bought a one acre piece of land and we turned it into this huge garden. And, you know, the first year it was wonderful. And the second year was wonderful. And the third year I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. And, you know, and it's also because you have a busy life and you have three kids and I have three kids and we run multiple businesses. And honestly, I was like, the farmers know how to grow food. So I'm going to let the farmers grow the food. And when COVID hit, especially, I realized I just want to play with my kids. I just want to be able to cook a meal and we eat it together and then we play. And I don't have to go put hay on the garden and, mm -hmm. you know, go in whatever else that you have to do, put stakes in to hold the tomatoes that were falling over and then yeah. feeling guilty because my, now my tomatoes are going bad and I'm wasting food. And it was really, oh. it was the same thing, that emotional roller coaster. And I think that's okay to go through that because you learn, right? It's just an experience and you know what, and you have much more appreciation for sure for the grocery stores and the farmers and then all the people who haul their vegetables to the farmer's market and make it easy for us to, to consume the food. So I see that. Um, and it's not to deter anybody from growing their own garden, but it, I'd cool. say, yeah, give it a shot. And then afterwards go hug your farmers and buy them gifts and <laughs> thank them for what they do. But you um, do need, you need reminders. Like I had a, a good friend diagnosed with breast cancer and it needs things like that when I'm like, well, here's, here's some books. This is what you need to do. Oh, I've actually forgotten about this and that other thing. And so I get reminders and, you, you know, spiral through this journey of, of um, obeying every possible rule of treating the body with a complete respect to just and then it, things fall off. And so supporting other people and uh, through their journey gives, gives me reminders. And also there's now so much more evidence for a lot of the things that I kind of instinctively knew. Um, so to actually find those and to tell other people and patients um, as an explanation makes it an even bigger case for me to do that for myself. 
Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing the story, the journey with your kids as well. Because sometimes people hear these podcasts and they think that we're all super strict and we have like incredible willpower and courage and 24 seven. And it's not like that. We are living in the midst of a world of predominantly refined processed food and, you know, and also time restrictions and feeling tired some days because COVID has taken the most out of us emotionally. And so like, just so everybody who's listening know that it is an ebb and flow. It's a dance that you're going to go through and you're going to experiment with things. You're going to have different things motivate, motivating you. It might be melanoma for a few years. It might be you're birthing your first child. So you are hyper aware of everything. So then you try and do everything perfectly, but then you have your third child and you're kind of like, they've got this. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. They can raise themselves, you know? So know that it is a dance. It's an ebb and flow um, and, and motivations will change. So I love that. So how do you work with your patients then? Because as a general practitioner here in British Columbia, yes, there's so much evidence-based medicine showing that a plant-based whole food lifestyle, you know, lengthens your telomeres or telomeres and it allows you to live a very long, healthy life. So it increases longevity and it keeps you free of disease, but you are still bound within professional restrictions around how you diagnose and prescribe and treat your patients. So how do you work with your patients? How do you introduce this into their world? Mm -hmm. So here in, in British Columbia, I have a family practice cradle to grave. I, I took over a couple of retiring physicians patients. So I'm not open. I'm, I'm have enough people. I'm not, haven't been taking more patients. The list is closed. And that's a great honour compared to the system in England, um, where I was a, a family doctor, where they've moved more to team-based care. They want patients to be seen quickly. My patients might need to wait three weeks to book an appointment with me. But in England, they've, they've made it so that you would see like the first available member of the team might be your doctor, another doctor, nurse practitioner. And we would just be like a clerk, an admin service directing patients down different lines and avenues and really didn't have the continuity of care. So here, I'm really grateful for the system that people are really keen that they see their, their doctor. And I've, I use probably my curiosity, I'm just fascinated in patients to understand how they live their lives. So because it's still 10 minute appointments, um, but I see them lots. And now with COVID, we can do the phone calls, the video calls, to really get to know people, see them in their house. And that's the key, I find, to helping people to change, to slowly give them the information. So also, I work on a UK-like system out of one room in my office where I have asked them to put a chair in for me. I'm not standing up with a laptop um, going in and out of three different rooms I helped the patients to feel safe, you know, to get to know me, for me to understand their life and their struggles, because, you know, it'd be ridiculous for me to, to advise somebody to do this, and I don't know what terrible things are going on, so I'm really grateful I can get to know people and their actual situations, and then I might start by, if it's if it's the time that food is ready for food, like the smoking, that's, that's, that's a major priority, things other things might be more critical in their health um so once the patient's engaged then it's the case that i could maybe i always ask 
exactly so yesterday you woke up and like what is an actual what does their day look like that what did they have what time did they eat where were they on the road are they someone who's in the car a lot trying to picture where can I suggest that they start you know so if someone's um, a truck driver then like explaining it doesn't that they need to prepare before and it's all in the preparation I really do think that once people have assigned the time to do the shopping the cooking and like they visualize themselves what will it what will this life look like what how do how do I actually do it they, they probably known by that time that I'm um, I have quotes up in my room inspirational images um, like facts from the research and I I do like, you know, cooked meat like for my children. And I say, when I wash the dishes for them, I need hot water, a lot of dish soap. And for just my food, I just need some cold, cold water will do it. I say, picture your blood vessels. Do you want all that grease stuck to them? And like, no, I say, it's all a choice. There's a spectrum of health of which you are the one deciding what happens to your body I'm not going to make you do anything I'm going to offer that this is an option this is how you do it and then maybe when you're 60 or 70 your blood vessels in the brain won't all be clogged and I I do like to tell people what I really see happens when people eat animal products and especially with with the blood vessels not only do they reduce the risk of major heart attack and stroke. And stroke's very personal to me. And I, I do tell my patients that my mum was in her 50s when she had a stroke and that how terrible, and I describe her life and, and it almost brings me to tears describing it. And then they see how I share myself with them. I say, you know, she's in a wheelchair. She, she lost her life um, because of this. If she'd have known about this diet, she'd be here today. And so I just, you know, share myself and get to know their life in detail that they can change it they can change particularly the thing about the strokes of the blood vessels and the uh, mild cognitive impairment we call it nowadays where people don't actually have a diagnosis of dementia which is what a load of people fear but we still see so many people they might have a MRI of the brain for another reason and we keep seeing um, I see a lot on reports from MRI scans, CT scans, small vessel change, like narrowing of the small vessels, especially to the front of the brain, the executive control, the thing that, that goes in dementia. And a picture, say, like, des describe it, draw pictures of the blood vessels, and people really want to keep their brain function. So I say, if you do these, this diet, um, these other measures, you can keep the blood vessels open to your brain. Or if you don't, which is also fine. If you don't want to, that's also fine. I'll support you for your journey um, in eating meat, but just be aware you're blocking it. You're reducing the blood to the vet brain. And I see so many people with this mild cognitive impairment now at younger and younger ages. And I say, if you want to do that, that's okay. I'm really not going to criticize you because um, that's not my job. My job is to offer all of the options and the range of health outcomes that are dependent on lifestyle factors and it's up to the patients which ones they would like me to support them or they'll say not at the moment ask me next time and because I've got that relationship I can keep a note on the chart and the stages of change that they're at 
but it is like the, the mental, mental stage as well. So that's why I help them with, with the autogenics, with being living consciously. I love that because you're not forcing anything into anybody. You're acknowledging where they're at. You're seeing where they're ready for it. Um, you have information up in your office that they can just get curious and sit with that for a while. But if something ever came up, they would know the first person to go to would be you to talk to you about it. Um, I love that you're presenting the research. I just looked at two brain scans the other day or a set of brain scans from a 21 year old boy um, young man and basically describing exactly what you know you just described where you know this narrowing of the blood vessels and almost to the point of like atrophy in in the brain mm -hmm. and you know and this kid had basically like a severe b12 deficiency despite the fact that he was a heavy meat eater but i mean everything that neural connection from the brain to the body basically shutting down um so sick in the hospital and didn't eat any vegetables, didn't eat any greens, didn't eat any, and really had never grown up eating any. And this is today in 2021. And so I love that you just share that or even just drawing photos because for some people it is overwhelming to look at a brain scan. It's overwhelming to read a study. So they need someone to just share that information in a very simple way. And then if you want more information, just ask. So it's more like an invitation into this co-creation of health as opposed to it being even a prescription. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful way. And I think there's a lot of doctors out there that can learn from this approach because, um, yeah, because it is a lot of, it's a lot of information for someone to take in, especially if they're only just starting to understand this for the first time. So let's dive into the remainder of the podcast because you just brought it up now. So it's a great segue, the autogenics. Let's talk about how you got into neuroscience, how you got into autogenics and discovered this because for, and describe what it is. Cause I know a lot of people don't know what it is. Okay. So I studied neuroscience um, at UCL uh, alongside my medical degree. Uh, I was, I've always been interested in the mind body connection, you know, even way back at, at a high school level, just knowing that it is possible to change the body outcomes. Even I mentioned to you, I had got run over uh, cycling to work in 2001 and broken my pelvis. And at that time I knew I was admitted to hospital and I just self-discharged myself the next day because I knew that it wasn't helpful. I, I could heal myself that I, I don't need, I didn't, I knew I didn't need surgery. They told me that it was more, they wanted me to stay in hospital and receive the care in hospital rather than at home. So, so I, I knew that I'd be, I had experience of that mind body, it, the placebo effect that you can make it happen if you believe it. And if you find that, get that connection with the inner healer within you. So I'd start. Okay. With Time out here, because I, so as you say this, I just love it. So I completely understand where you're coming from um, on this, you know, because I've studied this for so long as well, but for the audience out there, who's just listening to you, you know, you are a very sound practitioner, very sound medical doctor. And then you're like, I can heal myself. So let's just go back to that. If you can describe that just in a little bit more detail for what you mean by that. Is it an esoteric, I can heal myself if I can just visualize it strong enough or tell us about maybe even the science behind it. Cause I'm sure there's some people on this podcast now who are like, this doctor's a little bit 
wacky Pika, and and you're not like you're so grounded so i know that this idea that you can heal yourself comes from there's many many other um underlying supporting uh arguments for this so you can either work with your own body or you can let it control you and then you can fight it so with the breaking the pelvis i knew that I was going to work with it. I wasn't going to sue the person that did it. Yeah, like that's huge, especially in North America for, for the patient needs to take responsibility for themselves and for their own health. So not to say people should never sue, but for me, I knew that for my best outcome, I would just need to focus on the health. What does health look like? And it's all the mental energy, focusing on feeling good and feeling better, not, oh, I'm giving the evidence for why I'm not good for the insurance company. So, so this, so I went on from that in 2001, had the melanoma and that more made me aware of the internal environment and the toxins we produce when we're in a state of stress. Um, when we're in a state of stress and the fight and flight response is active, then we produce a lot of uh, the norepinephrine, epinephrine and the cortisol, which dampens the immune system, dampens, as I said, with, with the melanoma, dampens our looking after our cell functions of the body. Okay, so I love that explanation because it is also not just this pie in the sky idea that I can heal myself, but it actually is you taking that conservative, um, very intellectual approach that if you minimize the stress on your body, so like you've already you know, the food is there, you've minimized mm. the food stress by only giving yourself healthy foods, but you're also minimizing the hormonal stress by not releasing these it's hormones. Yeah. yeah, and you're releasing hormones now that support the immune system, which then goes on to support the healing. So you do actually have full control of healing yourself. You can heal yourself. And also to make the most of all this time I'm spending, I, I love efficiency, like, um, I don't want to spend all this time chopping up all the food only for my intestines not to absorb it. And when your body's in a state of stress, it's your bowels are not the bits of the body that get the blood so much. When you're in a state of stress, your body doesn't know the difference between having to escape a tiger, activate the big muscles of the legs to run, the heart to pound, to give you the energy to run. But when you're in the rest and digest state of activating the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve you actually hear when i did my practice uh, of autogenic training we have this thing the autogenic applause when you hear the me, the sounds of the gurgling in this in the bowels that's great that's like well done from the body you're like you're actually getting the blood to the bowels you're absorbing all of these wonderful nutrients you've paid money for and bothered to chop up and gone and experienced all the the shame and stress of the colleagues being rude to you like why would you do all that and then not maximize the absorption like maximize the microbiome all of this so so I was on to what can I do then to turn off my stress response um, and yet still work in a stressful environment um, in medicine and so I, I found uh, autogenic training this was available for free when I when I found out about it in 2003 um, and it was actually hosted at the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital. 
so it was already that was another thing I was doing which the colleagues were like well you know it's the homeopathic hospital we all know homeopathy doesn't work so that was like a big stigma that I then had to keep quiet about but I, I went through the training um, and what it is the autogenics it's a series of mental training exercises and emotional release um, in order that we can respect the body's homeostatic mechanisms and achieve healing so the body has got a lot of homeostatic mechanisms just to explain to the listeners homeostasis is the body's natural balance system so with the thyroid hormone here you've got the thyroid gland making thyroid hormone you've got sensors that make the brain release some hormone which goes around the blood and makes you make more if you're not making enough You've got the kidneys with the salt water balance. The body has all of the systems in it to achieve health and balance. And it's only by toxifying ourselves with what we consume in, in eating and the mental toxins that we're not getting in touch with this system and respecting it. So we've got the food to get in touch with that system, but I wasn't doing anything to give homeostatic to my homeostatic homeostasis to the to the brain and all of the emotions. And people say, well, you know, is it religious? It sounds a bit a bit Buddhist. Um, I said, no, it is based on German science. In 1920, it was uh, developed in Germany and there's a lot of evidence for it. Just unfortunately, a lot of that evidence um, is in Germany, German and Japanese, um, but it is really, really popular, especially in those countries. So and that's, similar, that's similar to the Gerson therapy as well, because Dr. Max yeah. Gerson was a German Jewish doctor. Uh -huh. He published hundreds of articles in German. You'd have to translate them. And I mean, this is back in the 1918. It's the same sort of thing. And fortunately, he had moved to New York. So then he was able to publish articles, you know, in English, which was wonderful. But I mean, this is one of the things is that we can't discount research from other countries that is written in another language or just because it's a hundred years old because there's a lot of phenomenal research that's out there and so it's not to dis it's not we don't always have to look at the new brand new research as well and if we do look we'll actually find that they're saying the same thing the new neuroscience research of today is actually saying a lot of the same things that we knew back in 1920. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what's so exciting about about the neuroscience world, and, and you're thinking about where it's going. It's 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 going in that direction that things that we we think we know, but we're not sure. We're getting the evidence now. Exactly. So let's go back to the um, autogenics because I'm really excited to to share that because um, it's so little known. Um, it it's just five minutes, three times a day, where you learn to turn off your thoughts. And I say with, with the, is it religious? No, but in those Eastern traditions, kids and adults are taught that you can train the brain, you can train the attention. We're just not taught this in the West. And even at schools now, they might seem to have like mindfulness classes, but they're not helping the children to embody this idea that they are able to change how they feel. And that, that's what I wanted to do with this technique is learn something that's really applicable that I could learn and do my hospital work and just take five minutes like I had tried for three or four years all of the different meditations from different cultures I'd 
traveled every continent in the world, exploring, um, living with like, like tribes, like, like right off, off of the beaten track, seeing how different people were. I've always been interested in that, but I suppose I must be quite an anxious person, quite a busy mind and to be told, oh, just watch the breath. Yeah, right. Like, no, I can't do that. So this was very specified five minutes where the brain doesn't have time to go wandering off into worrying about the self, worrying about how many likes you've got on Instagram. So it brings the attention back. So because I learned it for my immune system, I wasn't expecting actually to completely turn off my thoughts and, and get rid of the, the anxiety like that, but it worked for me. So then I've gone on to teach it to other people. And it sort of works by four main principles, which is like the feeling safe. So few people feel safe nowadays. That was the core one. Having developing a sense of allowing is the second one. The third one is this deliberate expression of physical effects of emotions. And then the last aspect is a positive affirmation that we make for ourselves. So the first one, the shift into this state of feeling at peace. We never feel at peace in our world today. So to be able to have a skill that doesn't require too much time. I have people in their 70s and 80s who've done this even for three weeks. And they say, wow, I've never realized you could feel so at peace. And this is really what, what we all want. And it's what the body needs to activate there's a German word, umschaltung, which is the psychophysiological shift. And it's an actual thing that has been documented. And now we've got the, the studies, um, physiological studies, MRI studies. Um, I went to Tenerife and was scanned doing this autogenic technique that we know that it's a thing. And this shift from a sympathetic nervous system dominant system to the parasympathetic system with all of the benefits for all of those systems when the body, you feel at peace. The alarm bells are not ringing. So to get to this sense of peace without having to spend an hour out of my day um, is amazing. And the next part is the concentration training. Like I didn't think I'd be able to do that. I thought that was just for monks or people that spend so long just think with themselves in a cave or something, but um, uh, by the systematic training of this thing called passive concentration, which is that we live our whole lives active, active concentration, always striving with a goal. We don't do things just for the sake of it without a goal. So it's that shift that that's e even a thing that exists to have passive concentration. The only time we really do it is when we fall asleep at night if you think you can't deliberately fall asleep can you you know you can just let everything else fall away and all that's remaining remaining is peace and calm and then you fall asleep so to be able to activate that attitude in our life is what enables all these kind of life changes probably i don't know if i'd have been able to do all the gerson and everything else without these systems in my place of uh, being able to control the mind. And I say control like that because part of the goal of it is letting up control. I was very influenced um, 
when I got the melanoma about the Susan Jeffers books, like feel the fear and do it anyway. Oh, we, yes. we really need that with COVID. And like, that sounds great, but how do I do that? You know, and this was a way to doing it. But once you spend time, even just the five minutes, three times a day in this state of peace and relaxation, naturally things will come up. Like, you know, the body holds all of the memories of our lifetime, the traumas. It's very popular now in the last five years that um, the body hold, um, holds the score that Bressel, Van der Bolk, Van der Kolk and lots of other books. And it's trendy for people to talk about like all the trauma release. We know that we need to release the trauma. There are lots of beautiful therapies out there to help with it, um, but they, they take up time and they require quite, quite a bit of intense um, action from someone else. You can't do it all for yourself. So this is a therapy where you look at the emotions and have deliberate methods to express the harmful effects from the body. So you might have to work with somebody who makes you angry, even on a daily basis, but it's not socially acceptable to say what you think to them. So you've got a method where you can carry on your life, hold it, and then when you, when you get home, you can do some deliberate offloading of the effects of the anger so it doesn't damage the body. Um, so that's, that was really unusual. And like the body has a crying need mechanism. We cry for a reason. And if we never cry, we never express our grief, that's not, that's not healthy. That's not helping the homeostasis of the body. So we've also got this homeostasis in, in the brain as well and of the emotional systems. Um, people who practice autogenic training, they found by functional MRI studies have a thicker corpus callosum, the part that is, you've got two hemispheres in, in the brain, two halves, you have hemispheric synchronization when you practice this skill and that's more and more what we want for creativity to use all of our brain not to work in a, such a small stream of consciousness but to get new brain circuits and networks going and we know this we know the science is telling us this is the characteristics of of people that are creative that problem solve well but there's no direct route to achieving it and, and this seems to be for me emotional release and I've been finding more so because I've been teaching it in, in groups in um, in a pain clinic uh, how much anger is related to people's pain and particularly women's anger and um, the work of Soraya Shamali in women's anger she, she in her book I learned that in pain clinics women and men were just taught some anger offloading exercises and the women's pain scores were vastly lowered the men's weren't really and this just shows how cultured we are in our society not to express the emotions for women maybe it's it's not acceptable to be angry you can't be an angry woman that sadly is even happening i see it um, at the after school care where my daughter sometimes goes that the staff react much more when the boys um, or the girls get angry than they would if a boy, a boy does the same. It's still in our culture. So part of the therapy I say is undoing the culturalization of our body. We have to work with the body. It's got these systems. So if we have to do certain things that make us angry, we have to get rid of it as well. 
So, and the last, the fourth part of this is something positive because you could get wrapped up in all of the, the emotional stuff. Um, and that's just a part of the practice, but we have a positive affirmation knowing that we can create what we imagine to some extent in the body and that the more that we imagine what uh, it will feel like when certain um, outcome is achieved, we can work towards that by doing some processes and that can be more so. So it could be just a phrase like, um, I am at peace with myself and the world or I accept things as they are. And, and it just changes people's characters, pain and helps immensely with sleep. So that's my great finding that's come from this journey of from the melanoma. So thank you for the melanoma. Of course, and all you, I mean, every aspect of the autogenic therapy and the process that you take people through, it just resonates so deeply for me on many levels because I get a lot of clients who are millennials who were raised into the world of being taught that trauma has a negative effect on the body that it, I mean, it can be positive as well, right? Like there's resilience that comes from having to push against boundaries and having, you know, experienced trauma, but then there's also the negative um, aspect of that as well and how we do hold it in our body. But what I hear often a lot of, you know, my millennial clients is that they know that the trauma is there but they don't know how to move past it. And so they're trying everything from um, ayahuasca and like all of the, you know, all different types of plant medicines or, you know, it's yoga and deep breathing. And yes, all of these things are very helpful, but it does help to have a very like structured, but also, you know, doesn't sound autogenics has, there, you work within these boundaries, right? And there, there's a process you go through and it doesn't have to take years and years and years. We know that millennials, um, the psycho, the psychotherapist and the therapist and counselors that are working with millennials are seeing post-traumatic stress syndrome in these millennials, but that are almost born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Like they've never had to struggle for anything as well. And so it's interesting, um, this concept, because I definitely will refer a lot of my clients to go through the process. And it is similar in a way to the site K work that I do, which is site kinesthetic work. And the same thing, we do have that um, the affirmation piece. And we start with the affirmation piece and we go through a very similar process, but it's almost done in reverse. But I do love the fact that you can do it. You can teach it to your clients and they can do it, you know, three times a day, because again, we have people deep, deep diving into certain meditation techniques and then feeling like, oh, they're not getting benefit from that as well. Or am I doing it right? And it's almost creating more stress and trauma in a lot of people that they're not meditating right, or that they're not eating right. And so, and so we have to transition people through that as well, especially because there's so much stress around everything that we do. And so it's actually how we perceive that stress. And so we need support. And it sounds like autogenic therapy can help with that tremendously. And the affirmation, it, it, the affirmation will have its best effect and the most neuroplasticity happen when you have activated this state of peace, rest and a state and a state of mind that everything in the periphery is quiet. That is the, mm -hmm. the, one of the best phrases from one of the founders of the technique, that everything in the periphery is quiet. People describe this sense that they feel just almost bliss, that just it's all okay, a real a belief of it, not just a cognitive thought, because I, I'm really not a fan of big 
long, uh, expensive talking therapies, it doesn't get to what's in the body. We need to express what is in. And, and it almost reinforces it because the person is talking about it over and over and over again, which is reinforcing the experience and the images that we hold in our brain. And so now we're attaching even more experience around talking about it. And so then it gets held onto even longer, even stronger. And what you're showing is that people can go through this and learn it, learn how to do it on their own, but it can be done with a therapist not alone. Well, that's what I mean with a therapist, right? But then they have the ability to do it on their own after they've learned the technique, right? And they can sit, like lock themselves in a bathroom at work for five minutes, Mm -hmm. like you had once done. So, which is incredible. And who, the other part that I really um, attached onto, because it relates to my own personal experience growing up, you know, we had a lot of stress in our household and but I can see this, like my mom really benefiting from this as well, because she is somebody who held on to a lot of pain. You know, there was definitely trauma around leaving Africa and moving to Canada, and she left her entire family behind, and then all the dynamics of just living a Canadian life and, and, and so on. But she is somebody who had a lot of pain. And when she started meditating, it was amazing how all of a sudden she became this youthful, vibrant person. So I want to sign up for your program yeah. with my mom. And so you, do you do group training or online training or does it have to be in person? And what's happening in midst of COVID? How do you work with, with clients? Mm. So, yeah, I've, um, I've always been teaching some online um, to get to the to more people. You know, I was very rural in Somerset, so I've, I was always using Skype then. Nowadays in British Columbia, if somebody has an MSP coverage, um, then they're permitted to join up via my website uh, to group classes where I have categorized my approach into different ones for anxiety, um, insomnia, um, in the postpartum period. And it's seven weeks of uh, 90 minute Zoom sessions where there's patient education about the condition relevant to that particular class, in addition to applying all of these um, theories over the seven weeks in a group of about eight people and do you have to have a diagnosis and be referred by a doctor no, to sign up for it or you can by the website. Mm-hmm. okay so that's good so anybody who knows that they want to sleep better have less pain work through any past previous and current life traumas oh i don't know about past life trauma i'm not no oh no not past life <laughs> just previous yeah <laughs> Like, that's interesting. Yeah. That's like, but also, yeah, they can do it. But the people, if, if anyone is located within Canada, physically located, they may also um, learn individually um, private pay as well. Okay, that's me. So they can book a session with you, mm-hmm. which I always find is definitely very effective because you can just get right to the, the root of things. But I also love group sessions as well, because it's almost like a double bang for your buck because you get to learn through the experiences of other people in the group as well. You do. And luckily it's not group therapy. A lot of people worry, is it group therapy? Absolutely not. We get together as a group to learn the practice and to share our experiences of how we apply it in life. um, So we can learn from each other, but some people don't want to contribute too much. And that's also fine. They can still join and learn. 
Okay. That's really, really good to know. And do you find that you work with, what's the age group of people that you work with and is it predominantly women or is it everyone? Oh, oh, men and women, very often both, maybe more women, um, but definitely men in all arenas of life, the busy businessmen, the someone who's retired, people who are like 21, 21 year old guy in the last course, um, all ages, yeah, from 16 and children can learn one-to-one, um, but I, I do teach all ages and I do have experience with children. I did all my pediatric training and some psychotherapy training in psychiatry. So got all of that to put together there. Amazing, amazing. I'm so glad that you shared about this. It's definitely a new area for me and I always love learning. So I can't wait to explore this more and study with you and through you. Um, So what do you have planned for 2021? What is 2021 looking like for you? Well, it's it's ever changing, isn't it? It's not too good to have definite plans, but for Mm -hmm. I'm starting out to teach more autogenics um which i love and i do this thing mess painting which you said lucy's the wacky doctor this is gonna really make people think i am but (laughs) no tell me what is it so you said mess mess painting mess painting yeah so so i learned this technique it was introduced um in fact to canada by a man wolfgang luther in the 70s he was a german physician who brought the technique to uh, Montreal to the, he worked actually at the Institute of Stress. So there were proper studies done. And then he moved to Toronto and he taught it in um, to different populations around there. He actually moved to Vancouver, but then died um, after he got sick after a sailing accident. Um, mm. Anyway, this, this is mess painting, otherwise known as creativity mobilization technique, a way of mobilizing the creativity and finding your authentic self so you know the autogenics is great it can help you to feel peace it can help you release the emotions and be more in touch with your body but I wanted to take the self-exploration further and this mess painting is where you have eight specific colors of powder tempera paint so not the mixed up ones and then you would place plastic sheeting in a corner of your condo and make as much mess on large sheets of newspaper in two minutes. And you would do like 15 or 20 in one session. And then you'd have a bath, a bath and write a diary about what your experience was of the process. We're not interested in what these paintings look like. When I teach it, I teach over six weeks. I'm going to do the first groups by zoom because people need this more than ever and I can't yeah. wait for COVID to finish to get it out so the first course is starting next month um, what people see is as they do this process they will notice that they're not in fact making a mess on the newspaper sheets we're so cultured not to make a mess so they might leave the corners without any paint they might leave a picture of a person's face uncovered because we don't do don't scribble over people's faces do we so this helps to unlearn the effects of the modern society like going over the rules and just letting what is deep within come out so this is really the best route i've known to the unconscious to 
work through experiences that you might never have verbalized. It doesn't need to have been something very traumatic, but can just be things that have happened to you. As I say, they're still within the body. They're still within the mind. Um, once you've worked through them, which may not need actual talking therapy, just an experience of the feelings of making a mess. You'll look at your paintings. Um, you do four days a week and then meet up with the therapist and people in the group and you can see the mind at work. So in one painting, you might do uh, the primary colors that we're taught are, are nice colors. And then the next one, remember that you're not making a mess, but remember the whole process is no thought. So you're not looking at what colors you're using to do the painting. It's just making a mess, getting the thick paintbrush out of the jar and making mess. And by, by making actual real mess, you notice your, when you look at them later, your attachment to certain colors. Like why don't you want to use black, brown and black all over it and ruin your nice picture and it helps you to unearth things that have as I say never been verbalized so after three weeks of doing this process and along with the therapist you're allowed to use some conscious control to what colors you're using um, let the pattern evolve limit yourself not to two minutes but to five or ten and from that process that I really knew I was onto something really incredible when I did one of these paintings and went back to look at it and you are advised to display one of the paintings in your home somewhere visible every week um, and I put this one I knew it had some significance to me um, and then I was looking at some photos of my mum who had died a while ago um, and I realised it was the exact pattern of her scarf that I hadn't seen since I was three wow and it's just wow this gets to the places that are there and if you can move through that you just you feel free you can you can be yourself so that's that's wonderful what's happening this year is i can share that on zoom that is incredible and that just gave me shivers when you talked about your mum. It was two things that came up for me when you're talking about the autogenics and then this mess painting is number one both times when you were speaking, I just found myself taking deeper breaths. Like even from you <laughs> speaking about it, I was like taking deeper breaths. But then about the mess painting, it was fascinating because as you described like doing this style of painting, I'm like, how would I, like already my thoughts are going and obviously representing all of those ideas that I've been raised with and taught and taken in and assimilated, but I was starting to get anxious. Like, how would I do this? What section of my house? It would be so messy. Could I clean it up? And I can't use a paintbrush. I've never painted before. And I, there's no way I could display it. But like, it's amazing how all of this anxiety came up around this. And I don't tend to be quite an anxious person. Um, but when it comes to art, I was taught that, you know, you only become an artist if you want to be broke the rest of your life too, right? So I never did art in school. And so then the third thing that came up with me was fear, you know, fear that I wouldn't do the painting right, you know, and this obviously brings up perfectionism. Yeah. So it's fascinating, even from just having you describe the process of autogenics and describe the process of mess painting. And I'm sure our listeners are going to experience the same thing if they really look within 
that already it starts to transform you. That is part of the process. And when people learn, they, they ask a lot of questions about how to source all of the products for the painting. Yes. And I'm like, well, you've got the instructions. It's part of your process to work it out where yeah. you're going to do it in the house and that. Yeah, it is the process orientated um, yeah. discipline. It's that is beautiful. So I can't wait to try that as well. And people can <laughs> register for the mess painting on your website as well. Yes. Okay, this is fantastic. So we covered so many bases in this show. Everything from you becoming a doctor and being motivated by that desire to help people heal and be healthy and, you know, then your own, um, you know, experience with melanoma and then what that was like to make these lifestyle habits around the Gerson therapy. I mean, so much more on autogenics and, and the mess therapy. What are three things that you would love to leave our audience with after mm. knowing that they just learned all of these amazing things, so many things to dive into and to try? What are three things you'd love to live with them, leave with them with? That you are living with an ancient body and mind in a modern world. And so to respect that and work with it, mm. that one or two things, the body and the mind, um, and they remain curious and have gratitude. Oh, those are beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Lucy Lyons. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show and to share your wisdom. I wish that your calendar was open, but you're, you're booked up. So if anybody's listening to this and wants an MD, you wanna definitely look for somebody who has the same qualities as Dr. Lyons has. Definitely someone who wants to take the time to get to know you before they reach out and just start prescribing willy-nilly, but actually wants to get to know you so that in the end of your relationship, I love that cradle to grave philosophy with your physician. If you can establish that kind of relationship with somebody, then you are gonna be um, far better off for having done that. And definitely get over to Dr. Lucy Lyons' website. What is your website called? We should tell people what it is. It's dr-lucy.com and an Instagram, I shall get going, dr underscore lucymd. Perfect. And we're going to have the links in the show notes. So you'll be able to find that if you can't remember. Um, so thank you so much for being on our show today and for sharing everything about yourself with our audience. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Wasn't that an incredible podcast? I know I say that after so many podcasts, but I am just so invigorated and so energized by people who are willing to challenge the status quo, dive into the research and see what is there when it comes to being able to reverse disease and heal people from trauma diving into the neuroscience and seeing because it's still such a relatively new field and there's still so much that we don't know about the brain and the human body. So I just love anybody who's willing to go beyond in their profession and bring to light all of this information that can help us realize our innate potential and help us to grow and help us to thrive. So it's been such a pleasure having Dr. Lucy Lyons on the show definitely sign up for her autogenics therapy work, sign up for her mess painting work. I'm definitely going to do that. And of course, if you want to know more about 22 million strong and the work that we're doing to 
work alongside Indigenous communities across Canada and First Nations communities and communities of color across Canada to help share the information that has long been held. This knowledge has been there in the communities for millions and millions of years, but we all need to remember this knowledge that food is medicine. So if you want to follow my tour across Canada, where I will be cycling and running 7,120 kilometers from Victoria, British Columbia, all the way over to St. John's, Newfoundland, please sign up on our Facebook side, site 22 million strong and head over to our website, 22 millionstrongca So you can learn all about how you can get involved in supporting this journey and also being part of this journey. We are gonna be putting out a call for volunteers to help all the way across Canada. And of course, if you are a business or you can sponsor our event, please head over to our site, reach out to us. Um, you can email me directly at nicolette at richerhealth.ca and let us know how you wanna get involved and support this incredible journey and research. So thanks everyone for being here. We will see you on the next episode of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Bye for now.